Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for bringing us safely to this place for the Sabbath hours, these sacred hours that you have demarcated, reserved for us to meet with you. We're taking you up on that offer now, and so we invite you to come. May you speak to us. May the message today be communicated in such a way through the miraculous agency of your spirit to pinpoint exactly what we need to hear. And may the words be clear, we pray. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of us here today believe that Jesus is coming soon? How many of you think that? We are in a Seventh-day Adventist church, right? So it only makes sense that we raise our hands to that question. But let's rewind time a little bit. If we had gone back to when our parents were our age, and you stepped into an Adventist church and you asked that same question, what do you suppose the reaction would be? Same reaction, hands go up. Let's go back another generation. What about our grandparents? What about our great-grandparents? What about our great-great-grandparents? What if we rewind time all the way back to the early 1840s, over 160, 70 years ago? If we ask that same question, how many of us believe that Jesus is coming soon, not only back then, not only would they raise their hands, they would jump to their feet. They would shout hallelujah because to them, Jesus was coming very, very soon. So, what happened? 170 years later, we're still here. Asking the same question. Soliciting the same response. But has it ever crossed your mind, that question? Why hasn't Jesus come yet? We've been preaching this for so long. Even the skeptics are stepping up to the plate and saying, you Adventists, haven't learned your lesson yet. All things continue since the beginning. And we say, ah, but look at the signs. Wars, rumors of wars, famines, pestilences, the love of many waxing cold, earthquakes in diverse places, all of these signs, we hear them, right? Every evangelistic meeting we go to, we hear them. Every set of Bible study lessons is either number one or two. The signs of the times. Jesus is coming soon. We pound this drum. But haven't there been wars all through human history? Haven't there been famines all through history? The plague, illnesses, natural disasters, earthquakes... Signs in the heavens? Have we been duped? Have we believed a lie? Do Seventh-day Adventists simply believe this as a form of tradition? Or, as some would say, we've been brainwashed into a system of religious control? Where we conjure up this manufactured sense of urgency in order to control our young people to make them do what we want them to. Is that really what we believe? Because if we believe that we are Seventh-day Adventists, believing for the advent of Jesus, but yet that very foundation of our faith is all but a 
fancy fairy tale, a fable that has no grounding. Why? Why believe? Why be an Adventist at all? You know, the danger is that this type of thinking I have seen leads to two extremes. There are those who fall into the ditch of icy indifference. The Bible says there is a servant, actually you can read about it in Matthew chapter, end of Matthew chapter 24, a servant, he calls himself a servant, he goes to church, he calls himself a believer of Jesus Christ, but he says in his heart, my Lord delays his coming. And how do we know? By the way he lives. So can it be that some of us internally, even if we don't say it out loud, internally we think, oh, time is just going to continue. We might even secretly think, oh, Lord, really? I really don't want you to come back until I finish school. You know, like, let me get married first? I mean, that's sort of important. Like, can you wait a little more? He's not really going to come that soon, right? We think this. And it shows through our actions, right? The priorities in our lives are such that, oh, hmm, Maybe it's not so important to spend time with Jesus when there's that new movie coming out or the new game that I pre-ordered. That's one extreme. But then there's the other extreme, which I call the fires of fanaticism. So we say, oh, Jesus isn't coming yet. So we look for conspiracies around every corner. Under every leaf, every rock, there is some secret society. And we try to conjure up this sense of excitement like, no, the end really is coming. You wouldn't believe what I read on the Internet. You wouldn't believe what happened in the White House the other night. Secret closed-door meetings that the Illuminati is in charge of. Jesus is coming soon, can't you see? The fires of fanaticism and the icy indifference of Laodiceanism, so often we fall into either of these two ditches because internally we're trying to wrestle with this idea if we've been preaching that Jesus is coming soon for generations now, and he still hasn't come, we've preached the signs, they've all been fulfilled, what gives? We need to see what the Bible has to say. This is our natural reaction, and the only answer is if we turn to the Word of God. What does Jesus actually tell us about this dilemma? Let's look in Matthew chapter 24. We look at the world around us. We see the unrest in Syria, the Middle East, the flooding in Louisiana. We see Zika virus coming right here to Hamilton County, Tennessee. We think the world is about to come to an end. Surely Jesus must be coming soon. But notice what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 24, chapter 24 and 25, his apocalyptic predictions about the end of time. Jesus talking to his disciples. Let's jump right in at verse 6. Jesus says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. We've heard this preached as a sign of the time, as long as we've been alive. But notice what he says next, what Jesus says next. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is what? Not yet. Huh? Jesus says, oh yeah, you're going to see signs, rumors, wars and rumors of wars, but Hold your horses. It's not, it's not the end yet. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. Surely when these things happen, the end must be around the corner. Even at the door, right? 
verse 8 says, all these are the what? Beginning of sorrows. Wait a minute. Have these Adventist evangelists been misleading us all this time? We read these verses and every time we say, see, Jesus is coming soon. But Jesus says, these are the beginning of sorrows. So how do we make sense of this? Let me illustrate it to you this way. Imagine you're going on a road trip. You're driving down the interstate and you want to go to New York City. When you start driving towards New York from here in Chattanooga, you're not going to see New York on any of the signs along the road. You're going to probably see Knoxville or maybe Roanoke or Washington, D.C. or something that's on the way, right? But once you get close to New York, maybe a couple hundred miles out, you begin to see on that road sign, New York City, however many miles are left. And as you get closer to your destination, what happens to the frequency that you see those signs telling you where New York is? You see more. They come, become more frequent, and then you begin to see the mileage start ticking down. It gets closer and closer, and pretty soon, every sign tells you two miles to your exit, one mile to your exit, half a mile to your exit, and then, this is your exit. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, when you see these signs, they are simply the road markers telling you that you are headed the right direction. But they're not the exit sign. Imagine you're driving down the road and you begin to see signs on the road that says Los Angeles, 200 miles, and you're headed to New York City. What should that tell you? Better book a plane ticket to go the other direction because we're headed the wrong way. So what's Jesus saying here? These signs, yes, you're going to see them. Yes, these are the beginning of sorrows, but they simply mean you are headed the right direction. And just like those mile markers, as you get closer to the end, they're going to become more frequent. They're going to be more intense. They're going to come in closer proximity, but they're not the exit sign. So what are the exit signs? So I want to spend a few moments with you now looking at the Bible to look at the two conditions, the two criteria or the two signs that the Bible reveals to us as the clear markers for when here's where you take your exit from this world okay so in other words what are the two signs the two conditions that must be met after which jesus will come the bible makes it very clear let's stay in matthew chapter 24 and look at verse 14 Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14 says this very simply and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Very simple. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness, and then the end shall come. So what is that telling us? The world needs to hear the gospel. And until the world hears the gospel, the end will not come. So in the book of Revelation, let's turn to Revelation chapter 14, we actually see the prophet John expounding upon this very point. If indeed the Bible says, Jesus himself says, this is one of the conditions 
that must be fulfilled before he can return, you can be sure that God is not going to leave us in the dark. He expounds to us a little bit clearer. What is this gospel that Jesus is talking about? And what does it mean, the gospel to the world? What does that mean? Does that simply mean as long as we're on the world wide web, everyone has access to it, our work is done? Or does it mean more than that? Revelation 14, the three angels' messages, beginning in verse 6, this is what it says. And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of waters. And then you continue on to the second and the third angel's message. So put it in other words. This gospel that must be preached to all the world is not just any gospel. It is the everlasting gospel that is defined in Revelation 14 as the three angels' messages. That message, that gospel must be preached to all world for a witness unto all nations. Now what does that mean? All nations. John makes it very clear. The angel preaches to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. In other words, to every single person on the earth. So the three angels' messages, the gospel, the everlasting gospel, must go to every man, woman, and child on the earth until Jesus can come. Wow. And now this forms a reason. This helps us understand why the Seventh-day Adventist church places personal, public, worldwide evangelism as its highest priority. That's why the Seventh-day Adventist church is a worldwide church. Getting a little bit more practical, that's the reason why we don't keep all of our tithes and offerings at the local church level. Because the money goes to to reach the whole world. We're part of a worldwide movement. And why are we a worldwide movement? Because that has to happen before Jesus can come. And I praise the Lord that the Seventh-day Adventist Church takes our work seriously. The Adventist Church, according to USA Today, is the fastest growing church even here in North America. We think the church is dying in North America. We are the fastest-growing Protestant church here, even outpacing the Mormons. And we are active worldwide with the second, well, with the largest Protestant educational system, the largest Protestant health ministry system. We're second only to the Catholic Church. We have media ministries, online ministries, health ministries, education, publication, humanitarian work. We have all sorts of ministries, all for the purpose of taking the gospel to the world. But the, but the reality here is that this is still a tall task. According to the Adventist Office of Statistics, we add over one million new members to our church every year. Every year, over a million, every year, every year, every year. That's roughly one new member, uh, or rather, that's approximately 3,000 per day. That sounds a little bit like Pentecost, right? But here's the problem. There are approximately 19 million members worldwide now, and that's roughly one Adventist for every 3,900 people. So in other words, every single one of us, every single Adventist alive on the earth today, we need to go and we ourselves individually must speak 
to 3,900 people in order for everyone to hear. But there's one step further here. There are approximately four births every second of every day and two deaths every second of every day. So that's a net gain every second on the earth of two more people. So there is a slight problem here. The math sort of works against us. But nevertheless, we understand that the final work of taking the gospel to the world is not a work that God leaves entirely to us in our feeble power. It's in cooperation with the agencies of God that this work can be completed. The work, yes, is difficult. Yes, we need Holy Spirit power. There's this thing called the latter rain that's going to empower the loud cry that goes to the whole world at the last uh, moments before Jesus comes. Yes, I understand all that. But the point I'm trying to make is this. The latter rain, the Holy Spirit, the help of the heavenly angels, all of these things make no difference when a church is sitting around doing nothing. How is God going to pour out his spirit on a people that just sits around? Yes, there is a lot of work to be done. No, we cannot hope to have success by ourselves. But humanity joined up in partnership, in cooperation with divinity. Yes, the work can be finished. And indeed, the work must be finished because Jesus himself said, only until this gospel goes to all the world and then the end will come. But there's a second half to this puzzle. We mentioned there are two conditions. So I just mentioned the first one. Now imagine if somehow by tomorrow, right, or the end of today, everyone hears the gospel. Everyone gets a Bible study. Will, will Jesus then come tomorrow? Maybe not quite. Because we need to look at the second criteria for his return. Let's look now in Revelation 14. Hope you're still there. Revelation 14, we're going to skip near the end of this chapter in verse 14. And what we're going to look at is a vision. It's a symbolic representation of the end of the world or the second coming. Revelation 14, verse 14 says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. So Jesus coming on the clouds of heaven. Verse 15, And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. So the second coming of Jesus in this vision that John has is symbolized as harvest time. Jesus, as the farmer, he sees that the grain has ripened, and he sticks in the sickle and he reaps. So in other words, if I can look at this parable enacted... It tells me that there is another sign, another condition that must be fulfilled before the second coming can take place. And that is, very simply, the harvest of the earth must be ripe. Makes sense, right? For those of you who have gardens, you understand exactly what I mean. You don't plant your corn 
one day and you expect to harvest the next. Not even the next week. You're going to have to wait some time for the seed to grow and to ripen. So what does it mean for the harvest of the earth to be ripe? Look with me in Mark chapter 4. The Gospel of Mark chapter 4, as we try to unpack what this symbol means. The harvest of the earth is ripe. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 26, Jesus speaking. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. And just as a side note here, what does this the seed represent? Earlier in this chapter, Jesus actually explained. The sower went forth to sow. He cast seeds by all soil types. The seed represents the gospel. And so he scatters the seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how. For the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, after that the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So this gives us a little bit more information about this process that needs to take place before the harvest of the earth is ripe. There must be a sowing that takes place. And guess what? We just talked about the sowing. The gospel going to all the world, the seed must be scattered across by all waters, on all soils. And then there must be a process that takes place. And that process then produces ripened grain in the full head of the ear of grain. And so when you look at, clearly it's talking about grain here, you have wheat, or let's say corn, right? You're growing corn. How do you know when that corn is ripe? Because yes, we know when it's a small sprig and there are hardly little, tiny little ears and they're all green, the kernels aren't full yet. We know that's not time to harvest. But how do we know when the grain is ready to be harvested? How do we know the fruit is ripe? Let me put it to you another way. If you planted corn or wheat or oat or something else, what do you expect at the end of your agricultural cycle? Would you expect to see tomatoes on the vine? Peppers? Watermelon? You would expect to see fruit that is in kind, that looks like the seed that was planted. Does that make sense, yes or no? The way to know when the corn or the wheat or the grain is ripe is when the ears of grain, the heads of grain, has now been reproduced, if you will, in the likeness of the seed that was planted. And so the gospel that goes to the world, what, what image should we see at the end of the process? Let's look in John. Let's try to just nail this down. John chapter 12 and verse 23. John chapter 12, verse 23. Jesus again speaking. Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And he's talking about the hour of his death. The end of his life as a man on earth. He's about to be crucified. And verse 24, Most assuredly I say to you, 
Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Speaking of his own life, Jesus refers to himself as the seed, as the grain that through his death is buried in the ground and germinates to produce much fruit. And is it not the everlasting gospel to preach about this man, Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection? So what am I trying to say? Let's put all these things together now. The harvest of the earth must be ripe in order for Jesus to come again. What does it mean for the harvest of the earth to be ripe? It means that the seed that was sown, the gospel which is about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus must then bear fruit in reproducing a group of human beings that have the likeness of Christ. Now let's make this abundantly clear because Christ's object lessons, the pen of Ellen White, makes this crystal clear. Christ's object lessons, page 69, paragraph 1, it says this, When the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle, because the harvest is come. Same illustration as we saw in Revelation 14. Notice what she says. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. There we have it. Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, and this gospel must be preached in all the world, then the end will come. Christ, Egypt, lessons 69, when the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. The two conditions, gospel to the world and gospel reproduced in the hearts of God's people. And when we talk about being like Jesus, we sing the songs, and it sort of rolls off our tongue. It's like a cliche. It's like, yeah, of course, we're Christians, yeah. Who wants to be like Jesus? Oh, yeah, 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 all right. Heard that one before. But just pause a moment, and let's, let's just think about this. Not only are we called to speak the words, but we are to live the words. And the failure of God's people to do these two things result in a second coming that has not yet transpired. And when we think about these two things, we've got to also understand that they cannot be separated one from the other. These are two legs, if you will, of the marathon runner trying to finish the race and cross the finish line. On one hand, character development. Spending the time not just knowing about the gospel, but absorbing and living the principles of the gospel. When that happens, in our hearts springs up the same love of Jesus for those souls who have not heard. And it compels us to share that which they do not have. And in the process of sharing the gospel, we ourselves become refined closer into his image. But yet, sometimes we try to substitute one leg, try to run the race just on one leg. We think about the evangelism that needs to happen, and yeah, I'll write the check. I'll even volunteer a few hours a week to help out. 
I might even go on a short-term mission trip, but evangelism's really not for me. We seem to think that we can substitute personal piety. Oh, I'll just study the Bible more. We turn inward, thinking, oh, I'll just be more involved at church, but I'm afraid of sharing the gospel with my friends at work or school. We seem to think that we can hop across the finish line with just one leg. You can't do that. Many young people become disillusioned because they come to church and they don't see the life of Jesus reflected in the life of the members around them. And when we do that, we might do all the evangelism in the world, but people come in, they take one look at us, and they go back out. We can't have one without the other. We can't just sit at home and say, I'm going to become like Jesus by just memorizing Scripture. And let me tell you, we should memorize Scripture. I'm not saying don't memorize Scripture, but we can't do that and expect it to substitute preaching the gospel. We can't do one thinking it will mask the deficiency in the other. If we are to become like Jesus, we need to be like him in all aspects. And when you look at the life of Christ, he did not, yes, he spent time in prayer, yes, he spent time in study, but he spent every waking moment serving those around him. And as we look at the needs in the world around us, how can we say that we have the character of Jesus when we are not moved by the same love that Christ had for those in need? In fact, I read this passage earlier, Christ's optimism, page 69, paragraph 1, when the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. The very next paragraph, notice what it says, paragraph 2. She continues, Were all who profess his name bearing fruit to his glory, how quickly the whole world would be sown with the seed of the gospel. Quickly the last great harvest would be ripened, and Christ would come to gather the precious grain. When we take seriously what it means to be like Jesus, the gospel will go to the world. But I have some sobering reality I need to share with you. This is found in the book Evangelism, page 695 and page 696. And this was written in the year 1883. So what year did I say? 1883 long time ago. This is what she said. Had Adventists, after the great disappointment in 1844, held fast their faith and followed on unitedly in the opening providence of God, receiving the message of the third angel and in the power of the Holy Spirit proclaiming it to the world, they would have seen the salvation of God. The Lord would have wrought mightily with their efforts. The work would have completed. And Christ would have come ere this to receive his people to their reward. It was not the will of God that the coming of Christ should be thus delayed. What year did I say that was written? 1883. 
the greater part of over an entire century, we've been living under a reality in which Jesus could have come, but he didn't. And why did he not? The conditions simply have not been met. The passage here simply says, had God's people received the message of the third angel, receiving it to transform their life, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, proclaim it to the world. You see those same two legs running this race, accepting the message of the gospel and its transforming power to recreate us into the likeness of Jesus, step one, and then in turn, going to proclaim it to a world who has not heard because the people of God chose not to do it. Jesus said, let's wait a little longer. Let's put this into context a little bit. Historians have said that the 20th century, that's the 1900s, not only was the bloodiest century of all time, it was more bloody than all previous centuries combined. We had World Wars I and II. We had the unrest in the Middle East, Vietnam, Cold War, the advent of AIDS and other diseases like it, radical Islamic terrorism, economic collapses like the Great Depression and the economic collapse earlier in this century, the War on Terror, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, all of these things did not exist until the previous century. And here we're told that it was not the will of God that the coming of Christ should be thus delayed? The Bible is clear about what needs to happen before Jesus can come. God's not waiting for the Pope as much as we love to talk about the papacy. He's not waiting for him. God's not waiting for this presidential election, and boy, we like to talk about that even more. Mm -mm. Doesn't matter who the president is. That's not what God cares about. That's not what he's waiting for. And surely he's not waiting for another terrorist attack. He's not waiting for another earthquake, another wildfire, another thousand-year flood to sweep some part of the world. He's not waiting for any of that. He's waiting for you and me. And we sit here and we say, oh, we're waiting for Jesus to come. Have mercy. He's waiting for us. 2 Peter chapter 3. Let's look at that. Look at that very quickly. 2 Peter chapter 3. I don't want to say it in my own words, so let's let the Bible speak for itself. 2 Peter chapter 3. This tells us the mindset that we ought to have. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening 
the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You see, for us to truly be living as Seventh-day Adventists, we are not people who simply sit back and are waiting for the second coming. We are people who are actively hastening the second coming. There is a world of difference. One is passive and one is active. And if we look at the Bible, and the Bible has been very clear, Jesus is not saying, yeah, let's wait for another war. No, he's not saying that. The gospel must go to the world, and the gospel must do its work in our individual hearts. Those are the two things Jesus is waiting for. Christ's object lessons, again, says it is a privilege of every Christian not only to look for, but to hasten the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Evangelism, page 694, paragraph 2. The long night of gloom is trying, but the morning is deferred in mercy. Because if the Master should come, so many would be found unready. God's unwillingness to have His people perish has been the reason of so long delay. And sometimes we have the gall to sit and shake our fist at God and say, God, if you are so good, Why do you permit all of this tragedy to happen? When God looks at us and he says, my heart is broken far more than yours. But it's because of your unpreparedness that I continue to wait. He's saying, Lord, or Lord, the the Lord of heaven has the angel saying, Lord, let's go. Let's wrap this thing up. We're ready to go. And God says, wait, let's just wait a little longer. Maybe a few more would be ready. Maybe a few more would heed the message and be ready for my return. Because if I come, so many would not be ready. So is Jesus, is God late? Have we believed a delusion all this time? Brethren, no. The Bible has been clear. The Bible has been very clear what must happen and what posture, what position our God in heaven is sitting in right now. We're not waiting for him. He's waiting for us. And so how many of us here believe that Jesus is coming soon? For us to honestly answer that question, I hope it becomes clear now that we need to take a look at our own lives and say, is my life lived in such a manner that every priority in my life, every decision, every choice moves me in a way that helps to hasten rather than delay his coming? And maybe some of us here are reflecting on our lives. Perhaps the decisions that you've made recently, your personal devotional life has not been leading you into the likeness of Jesus, but to the contrary. Perhaps now, at the beginning of this school year, this might be the time to say, Lord, I'm ready to make that change. Maybe some of you look at the path ahead of you, your college career, and it's been all about you. It's been all about what you want, but not what God wants. Maybe it's time to change some of your plans. 
to ask yourself this question, is my life trajectory such that I can honestly say everything I'm doing is to hasten my Lord's return because I'm not just any old Adventist. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist wanting to hasten my Lord's return. Maybe there are some of you who realize there are certain things in your life, attachments that hold you back from doing what God has already called you to do. And you recognize in your heart, I'm saying that my Lord delays his coming. And you want to say no more. Today I lay those things before the feet of Jesus, saying, Lord, I don't want to be the reason why you wait anymore. I want to be ready when you come. So how many of us here want to say, Lord Jesus, help me to not just wait for your return, but to hasten your return? Let me see your hand. That's my desire as well. Let us pray. Father in heaven, today we have reflected on such a fundamental belief, but yet, Lord, how often it doesn't impact us in the way that it ought. Lord, may our choices, our decisions, our plans for our lives reveal to the world who watch and the universe that's watching that our lives are not our own but that we truly are Adventists, believing that you not only are wanting to come back soon, but that we can cooperate with you to hasten that day. And so guide us, Lord, in our choices. Guide us in our interactions. For those students who are beginning a new school year, may you renew within them the commitment to trust you every moment and to give you all of their plans and that you may use them to bring your return very soon. So bless us this Sabbath day as we seek you first. We ask these things in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.